today's reading is Jeremiah chapter 9, and you'll find this on page 492 of the Church Bible. Jeremiah, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. The Israelites confess their sins. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethaha, said, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name and may, be it, may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, you give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day you divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day, you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and degrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. 
But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold manna from, from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told your, their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land, they took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. 
yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or to the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Speaks, I've been caught in the open with a block of Jenga. That's Let me okay. pray for him. Lord God, we thank you so much for that passage where we see just how far back your people remembered you and your good work. And Lord, I just pray that we might too give you the credit for all the amazing things you've done in our lives and what that invites us to then do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jane. Great reading. Great to hear God's word. Long section of God's word. Lots of difficult words as well. So thank you for that. Uh, it's great to listen to it. And actually, I wasn't intending to say this, but it's interesting. If you were to take time to talk about what your history with God is like, what would you write down? What would you write down? What looks, what your history with God looks like in your generation, in your life, in your time. But that's not what I'm going to talk about this morning, but just while I think about it. I wonder this morning, um, as we begin, is to think whether are you or would the people who live with you say you are a half full or a half empty kind of person? Is the cup half full in your life or is the cup half empty in your life? Not many of you look that bothered by that statement either way, really. But, but actually, for those of you who live with someone, you'll know a little bit about what it is. Are you naturally an optimist or a pessimist? Casual reading of the newspapers, of the press, 
would lead you to believe that actually the world is completely broken, that injustice flourishes, that whether we look at the Windrush generation, we look at the moral failures of our leaders of different organizations, as we look at sexual failings and the issues of, of sexual and the appropriate way of behaving in our, in our culture, whether we look in some of the art and some of the culture, and there's a cry, look, don't you see? People are suffering. The world is not right. Do something about it. Don't just talk about it. Do something about it. Anybody who's walked alongside someone who generally has genuinely and generally suffered and knows darkness in a very real way knows that that's serious. But for others of you, they may sit and think, Do you know, to be honest, I just find it all a bit depressing thinking about all that stuff. Actually, just we need to be positive. Things are better. I was reading this week is a book that's recently come out by this chap, Hans Rosling. He's a Swedish academic, he's a statistician, and a speaker. He said, actually, the world is better than it's ever been, he would argue. There are actually less people in poverty. There are advances in science in all those other ways. means that we are in a better world than we think. I wonder how you think. For many today, and there are generations today, and particularly, I would argue, there's a lot of the younger generation who are growing up, where the idea of brokenness and the idea of personal sin actually is offensive to them. It's all a matter of opinion, all a matter of the different differences in a life. But a little probing of people who take that view doesn't take long for them to, to realize that there are parts of our world, our parts of our own lives that are right, that are broken, that actually we get beyond that. So whether you talk about the environment with anybody who's younger, they will talk about it with a passion and a realization that the world is aching, the creation is groaning, and we need to do something about it. So even if they won't accept or accept there's something broken within them, they won't go that far, they can find some things that they recognize are wrong with the world and recognize that brokenness is a part of our human experience. That for all the advances of what we think the Enlightenment and everything since the Enlightenment has brought, all the advances in education, in training, all the advances in technology, in science, and all the kind of increasing analysis through history hasn't necessarily left us with any more of an answer to the longings of our own personal lives. What's at the heart of our existence? The Christian understanding of the world is that one part of the brokenness in the world that we live in is our own failing. That you and I are tempted to go our own way. You and I want to do things in our own strength, in our own way. And we want to make things done the way we want them to be. We'll do things our way, thank you. I'm fine on my own. Sin crashes into our lives. And we face up to there's a spiritual brokenness in the world in which the only remedy for that particular brokenness isn't working harder, trying harder, doing more, finding more things to do, finding more 
leisure, finding more interest, finding more all those other things, isn't looking at more stuff on the telly, finding more beautiful culture, etc., etc., etc. But the answer to that is found in the loving, gracious, saving hand of God. But the answer is found in the loving, saving hand of God. A couple of people this week who have come to me where be involved in, going to be involved over the coming week in their funeral services. And when do you find yourselves, if you do find yourself, or even you recognize for yourself that actually you need to face up to the brokenness in your life, what is it you do then? What do you do when you recognize things aren't right, when my life is broken? Can I hold on to the hand of God when everything seems a mess? Will reading Psalm 23, for example, bring hope to my life? That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, my God is with me. Even though I walk through the most broken, the darkest, the most severe trial or temptation, my God is with me. One of the ladies who, in the last church I was at, she was 90-odd years old, and occasionally used to chat to her and say, how are you doing? And she'd say, Tim, I have a good shepherd, and he looks after his sheep. She would be the first person to say that she had all sorts of frailties, physically, emotionally, but she said, I've got a good shepherd, and he looks after his sheep. But to some, the idea of the brokenness and facing up to the brokenness of the world is actually quite challenging. Can you say this morning that you have a good shepherd who looks after this particular sheep? Not many of us, not some of us, want to own up to the fact that some of the stuff of our own stuff is broken and needs sorting. This week, I wandered along to um, Cantus Huntington's chapel, which is about 100 yards, 50 yards along, just along the road here and on the Paragon. It reminded me of one of the great stories that's told about uh, Countess Huntington. She'd come to faith under the preaching of George Whitfield in the 18th century here in Britain. And she tried to share her faith that she'd received with all her aristocratic colleagues. She was a lady of wealth and, and standing in society. She sent sermons to her friends and invited them to church to hear the preaching of George Whitfield. And the very famous letter that was sent back to by the Duchess of Buckingham after having been invited by the Countess to come and hear George Whitfield preach. And she, she sent, uh, the, the, um, uh, the Duchess of Buckingham sent the Countess of Huntington, sent an icy note declining to come to uh, any of his, to hear Whitfield preach or any sermons or come to church. And this is what she said. This is the Duchess of Buckingham. I thank your ladyship, but the doctrines are most repulsive. I'm strongly tinctured with impertinence and disrespect towards their superiors in perpetually endeavoring to level all ranks and to do away with all distinctions. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl upon the earth. 
It is highly offensive and insulting. So I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. She's right. The doctrine of sin levels people. It creates a radical level democracy of sinners. We need to reflect on where we are in our experiences in life. We need to reflect honestly and sincerely. And I wonder how you approach your own failures. The anguish and the, the angry and the selfish thoughts that dominate your mind as you think of your neighbor, as you think of your work colleague, or you think of the vicar standing up preaching to you this morning. Or the sense of guilt, or the sense of shame that still sticks to you after all these years over bad choices, bad behavior, bad decisions that you made about what you did to your child or how, what you did to your work colleagues or what you've done in whatever situation it is. One of the abiding images that I constantly have in the relation to the church, but also in relation to non-Christians, is the image from Pilgrim's Progress. So many of us can live our lives carrying a huge weight on our shoulders, too proud to confess, too proud to ask for help, too burdened, overwhelmed, weighed down, carrying a load that God doesn't long for us to carry. We're carrying a load of the weight of sin and guilt and shame that God sent his son Jesus to die for on the cross so he could bear the weight of all of it. And in the light of that, in the light of the weight that sometimes we find ourselves crying, carrying, does that lead us to a place of humility, a place of being teachable, of being open, being pliable to God, where we hand our lives faithfully over to God again and again? As we come to the cross of Jesus that stands here again and again and again. It's the only place, the cross of Jesus, where we'll find the true freedom that our heart longs for, the true rest that our lives long for, the place where Jesus was broken for us in our place. He gave his life for us so that we may have life too. And I wonder whether as you look at the low points in your own life, or even the low points in this church's life, how has that led you to a place of confession and to a place of repentance? Are we growing in humility and reliance on God? Or do we grow in self-justification, in denial? Do we really want restoration and healing. Nehemiah had overcome huge challenges to finally see the city of Jerusalem rebuilt. Nehemiah 9, and thank you Jane again for reading it, is a beautiful passage of scripture, a beautiful prayer. The context for Nehemiah is this, in Nehemiah 8, the people have just finished a celebration. It's called the celebration of the Feast of the Booths. 
And that time of the Feast of the Booths is finished off by a time of quiet reflection and introspection. They use this time in this festival to examine the state of their relationship with God honestly and to examine their own hearts. And reaching that place of honest reflection is a ripe place for what happens in Nehemiah 9, for a place of confession, of repentance towards God. Nehemiah 9 contains many beautiful images of who God is, but also images of the brokenness of the people. The first four verses set this scene for the confession. It leads to an extended prayer that talks about so much of Israel's history. Over the course of this prayer, again and again and again, we get to see the God who Nehemiah believed in. We get to see the God who's done so much for his people over human history, but also recently too. We also see alongside the wisdom and the amazing bit of who God is, we get to see the frailty of who we are, the frailty of the picture of our failing, that we've sinned against God. It's a picture of God's extraordinary love for us and our rebellion against God. The backdrop to any confession is the fact that we have a faithful, a gracious, and a compassionate God. God has been keeping his end of the covenant all the way through human history. On the other time, on the other side of the fence, we've rebelled many, many, many times. And here is the contrast that we see in Nehemiah. God is the covenant keeper. We are the covenant breakers. God is the covenant keeper. We are the covenant breakers. And the context to confession isn't about the law and all that's there. It's a relational thing. A Christian doesn't look all the time and think, here's the law and I'm breaking it all the time. We see that our relationship with God has been violated and broken and we want to be restored into relationship to the God who made us and created us. When we realize the enormity of our brokenness of our relationship with God, our response to that of being out of relationship with God, the God of love who gives himself for us, is one of brokenness. In lieu of who God is, we fall to our knees afresh, and cry out for forgiveness, and it flows out of us freely. None of us can live this morning, as many of you will know, and many of us will have tried it again and again and again. None of us can lead a holy life on our own. None of us is perfect, that's why Jesus came. We can't achieve holiness by our willpower, by our determination, by our giftedness, we can achieve it through the gift of Jesus, who said that apart from me, you can do nothing. If we want to grow as Christians, there's a process of being broken by God again and again, of being humbled and realizing a new dependency, a fresh dependency on God, of surrendering our lives to him so that we become more Christ-like. That's what it means to live a Christian life. 
the sooner we come to realize our need for God, the better off our lives will be. So many of us desperately spend our energy and our time trying to do it all ourselves, trying to achieve things ourselves. Too many of us are proud, including myself at times, too proud to just get on my knees and confess again. To fearfully come before God and say, you are trustworthy, you are true, you are faithful, and I lay my life afresh before you, God. In verses 5 to 31 in this prayer, it's a stunning community prayer. Over and over again, the people declare who God is and what God has done. This sets the context that I've said for the confession that's at the heart of it. Before the people stand and confess their sins before the Lord, they stand and look at who God is. Who is the God that we are confessing to? What type of God do we worship this morning? And a stunning picture of God emerges in this passage in Nehemiah 9. Let me just quickly take you through some of them. In verse 5, your name is glorious and exalted. In verse 6, you are the only Lord. In verse 6 too, that he's the creator of all. He's the life giver as well. In verse 7, they affirm that he's a God of Abraham, that he chose us, that he had his hand upon our lives and he came to us and revealed himself to us. We also see that, as I've said, that he's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He's a God who's true to his promises, true to his word, and that we can therefore come before him with confidence. Verses 9 to 12, we see that the God has delivered his people from the hand of darkness, of all that came against us. He's a God who's active and comes to set us free, ultimately for us, in the person of Jesus. Verses 13 to 14, we see that he's the lawgiver. He's the one who's just and righteous, who gives the law and, and understands what is righteous, true, and good. They affirm in verse 15 that he's the provider, that God, Jehovah Jireh, is the provider. In verse 17, that we have a forgiving God. Do you know this morning that you worship a forgiving God? that God forgives you if you come to him. Forgives you of it all. In the past, all that you've done in the past, the stuff you're doing currently, and even for your future sin, he paid for it all for you. That's the nature of who you worship this morning. God forgives. He's a forgiving God. And verse 17, one of those beautiful little sentences that many of you will know well. God is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, and abounding in love. If you struggle this morning to believe that God is good, maybe you need to just literally repeat that one sentence this week a few times. God, you're gracious and you're compassionate, slow to anger, but abounding in love. In verse 19, you guide us. God doesn't leave us on our own. He's the one who directs our paths, the one who goes ahead of us. In verse 21, that he leads and he provides, the God who leads us in life doesn't leave us just to make it our own way. In verse 23 to verse 25, 
the God who fulfills his promise, he's a covenant-keeping, promise-making God who is true to his promises. In verse 27, a God who isn't distant and remote, who's not interested in what's going on in our lives, but he hears our cries and deliver us, delivers us from our enemies. Verse 28, you show compassion even when we struggle with sin. God is compassionate towards us this morning. If you feel overwhelmed, if you still feel overwhelmed in the light of Nehemiah by the things that you're facing in life, God is coming to you this morning as a God of compassion. He's not sat in judgment on you. He's coming to you in compassion, longing to reach out to help you, to minister to you, to deliver you, to free you to show you his love, his mercy, his grace afresh. And then up to verse 31, we see that you're merciful, patient, and gracious. There's not a day that goes by, even though I know the promises of God, and again this week, just reminding myself that God is patient with me. Do you believe God is patient with you this morning? Or do you think he's in a constant state of grumpiness with the inability for you to do what you think you ought to be doing? Do you know that God is patiently seeking you out, drawing him back into a relationship with you and to what he wants you to do? He is patient with you, coming to you again and again and again and wanting to draw you to himself. I wonder, do you see God like that this morning? As Nehemiah writes... Is that the God we worship? Is that the God we see? Could you say those verses for yourself this morning? If you were praying or writing an honest prayer about where God is. And it's as we reflect on who God is, and then later on in the summer we're going to spend some time reflecting on some of the characteristic and nature of God, that actually confession makes more sense. If you don't believe that's what God is like, that that's his nature, that that's who he is this morning, then you will struggle to reach the point of confession. It'll be too costly. You'll want to hold on to it. But if you understand anything of what Nehemiah has prayed, you will realize that the only thing you would want to do is to come and to bring whatever it is before God again and confess. In the light of who God is, that's why confession makes sense. It's why at the beginning of our services, we spend time singing and praising first. It's in the light of who God is that we come to confess. So what's going on when we confess a sin? I just want to briefly take you through what's going on in confession. This is really just step by step. It's all in the passage, but I just want to very simply Remind us what we're doing when we do this. The first at the heart of confession is we're taking responsibility for our lives. We're not blaming other people for our behavior. We're not rationalizing our behavior away. We're not twisting the truth. We're not trying to blame others, manipulate things to be what they're not. We're trying to justify ourselves. We're humbly admitting before God, I did that. That's what I did. That's what I thought. 
that's what I said. That's what I've done. We take responsibility for the sin in our lives. And we stop blaming society or our spouse or our parents or our circumstances or whatever else it is of the circumstances we're facing. And that's where confession starts. Confession starts with a sense of taking responsibility for what's going on in our lives, what's going on, and saying, Lord, that's what I did. That's what I've done. Secondly, we then recognize that in the light of what we've done, in the light of some of our failings, that actually God, we come to God as the person who is just. He's a just judge over us all. He's the sovereign one of this world. That actually my sin is an offense to him as a good creator and a just judge. You're a just God. God, you are faithful. I'm not. God, you are entirely right. You're entirely true. And I am not. Therefore, you are in a good position to judge. Thirdly, as well as being just and, and a just judge, thirdly, we then ask for Christ's forgiveness. This, this cross is a reminder that for all of us, that actually Christ paid for it all on the cross. All our sins for all time, he took responsibility and the consequences for all that we've done wrong in the past and in the present so that we could be free, we could be forgiven. It's only in the person of Jesus that we find salvation. And this morning as we come to the bloodstained cross of Jesus, we're saying, you are my hope. As we come to the table to share in bread and wine and to celebrate all that God has done for us, we are accepting his forgiveness for us. We're saying, Lord, you came and you gave your only son for us, Jesus, to take all my sin upon us, on himself, on the cross. And I'm reaching out to the cross afresh this morning. Because actually, if the cross doesn't cleanse our sin, it doesn't get cleansed at all. Then lastly, we rest in the promise of the God who cleanses us and forgives us. I come across again and again and again and again and again in pastoral conversations. People who are forever saying, I've asked for forgiveness, but I just don't know whether I'm forgiven or not. To know whether I've received it or not. They really struggle to rest in the grace and the truth of the cross. They Um, constantly wrestle with the temptation that the devil may give, that they're not forgiven, they don't deserve forgiveness, whatever it is that you've done in the past. You don't deserve to walk in freedom from whatever else it is that you've done. Instead, but to cling on the truth of God's word, that through the work of Jesus on the cross, through the power of his resurrection and ultimately his ascension that we celebrate this week, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, We are accepted, we are forgiven, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We stand forgiven. We are forgiven. 
We are forgiven. We are forgiven. Whatever else it is, we are forgiven. 1 John 1, 9, one of the famous verses says this, if we confess our sins to God, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This morning, do you want to be free? Do you want to be clean? Do you want to know Christ's righteousness? Each of the four steps, as I've said, are found in the passage. And maybe this week you could take some time just to reread that passage. And just to reread and see, both in view of who God is and what he's done for us. God's grace and forgiveness are extraordinary. Being released from judgment, being released from the burden of sin, of guilt, of shame, is a beautiful thing to be washed clean, to be made whole, and to be made right with God. I wonder this morning, as we come to a close, have you experienced God's forgiveness and cleansing? You can just take some time in a minute just to be quiet and to confess again if there's anything that needs to come before God. There's some things in the past that you've never confessed. Maybe this morning you need to. The things in the past you've done that you have confessed, but you keep picking it up again and thinking, God can't if it's time to put it down and to leave it at the cross. To stop picking up some of your old sins that have been forgiven and take the truth of God's word that he has forgiven you. He has forgiven you. This morning, on the light of Nehemiah, and the light of God's goodness, his faithfulness, extraordinary love for us, it's time to get free from all that hinders, and it's time to get clean. Why don't we bring it before him today? In Jesus' name, amen. Just say a short prayer, and then we're going to have some quiet, and Pete will lead us. Heavenly Father, thank you. You are gracious. You are compassionate God, slow to anger, and abounding in patient, beautiful love. I pray, Lord, this morning that by your Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you come and set us free from all that hinders, all that binds, all that entangles us, and set us free again to be the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.